Desperately Seeking Entertainment. I am one of your hosts, Mr. Chris Peterson, founder, editor-in-chief, blog master, moderator, whatever you want to call me, on stage blog. As always, joined by the legend, Mr. Ben Frawley. How are you, sir? What's up, Chris? What's up, people? What's going on? I'm uh, recording live outside tonight, so we're up in central New York, so 10 feet of snow might fall at any second, <laughs> even though it's <laughs> You July. never know. It's chancy there. It's chancy. <laughs> it could be hit or miss. But uh, I live in a quiet enough uh, neighborhood, corner, corner, you know, corner house. So uh, only really two neighbors. So I, I think we'll be okay. Sweet. So yeah, be as loud as you want tonight. That's there right. Because we get so loud on this podcast. We're just screaming. I do. We, we're screaming just left and right. Uh, as opposed to me, I am coming to you live from a dorm room on the campus of the Savannah College of Art and Design, where I am spending the week uh, helping out with their summer programs. But uh, they, they, you know, instead of putting me up in a hotel, they, they make me live in the residence hall. So I've got, a, you know, a suite, but I'm by myself in here. So that's it's, excellent. It's that's weird. so much like back to school, Rodney Dangerfield. That's great. It's, it's, I'm looking around my situation. I'm like, if I had this during college, I would be a legend on campus. I would be the man. Cause I'd have an entire suite by myself, but as a 38 year old man, it's very depressing. And, um, <laughs> And also weird when you walk in and all the students are looking at you being like, who is this 40-year-old man walking into our residence Did you Did residence. you pull up in a Trans Am with an REO Speedwagon t-shirt playing the uh, – <laughs> playing the uh, – playing some Billy Squire or something? What's up, guys? Uh, <laughs> what what's, what's the – what's the – what's Cowabunga, man? <laughs> I'm hip. I'm with it. <laughs> yeah, it feels weird. But anyway <laughs> – Let's get into it. Folks, This on this podcast, Ben and I like to chew up and consume all entertainment as much as possible on a lot of different places, on a lot of different platforms, and bring basically what our five most interesting, passionate um, stories of the week, topics of the week, things that are happening in the entertainment world. Uh, the kicker is I have no idea what Ben is going to bring to the table, and he has no idea what I'm going to bring to the table. And throughout this entire couple past couple of days, Ben has been teasing me by saying, you've got like so much content and so much i gotta i gotta be honest with you i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it right back because i got a lot of content uh as well i, I feel like pent up like i'm ready to just to go so i know i, I um, you know what we had we had josh on last week which was awesome people raved awesome. about the episode people thought it was really cool just change up and we hope to have more guest stars like that just bring something different but only sharing three stories last week i have so many stories built up for five it's insane <laughs> Oh, man. I can't wait. So let's get into it, man. Why don't you kick us off? All right. Kicking us off at number one for me, Toy Story 4. Mm. Um, went to go see this with the kiddo. Um, I don't want to, like like I always do on uh, reviews of movies, I uh, don't want to spoil anything. So just adds up. No spoilers. I mean, it's Toy Story 4, so there's nothing too crazy I can spoil. I won't spoil the ending or anything, but can I just kind of give a brief overview of I believe that this movie was an achievement, at least in graphic effects. Now, I saw mm-hmm. this in IMAX, and um, you know, I'm watching with the kids, so I'm emotional that way. <laughs> I'm watching the content, <laughs> so I'm laughing that I'm emotional that way. 
but the nerd inside me could not stop looking at little things like the pavement that Woody was walking on and the minute details just coming at you in the screen. And I don't know what they did. Some, if they filmed it first and then overlaid it doing some Hobbit like tricks, it looked so real. It looked like they filmed it in actual locations. It was just wild. I, you know, here's Pixar just stepping up the game. I think that this movie will be the standard going forward for at least a couple years. Um, as far as texturing and as far as animating figures in a fully animated feature, you know, not uh, um, a graphics effects overlaid on real people. I just think that that is something that's going to go down in history. I mean, watching this movie, it was so good. It was distracting almost. That's how good it was. Like um, Bo's porcelain face uh, was out of control. The way Forky moved looked like, uh, you actually had like string effects on it. It was just, you could just tell the team was on their game. It took, you know, so long to do this and they're just firing on all cylinders. Chris, did you see this movie? I did. I did. What and, were your uh, thoughts? What were your thoughts on it? First of all, you know, I gotta be honest when I, when I saw the trailers, when I saw that they were coming out with the fourth movie, I mean, I gotta be honest, Toy Story three is perfection in my mind right. and perfect ending. I was thinking to myself, how in the world could they do a fourth one? Like what, story could be compelling enough or interesting enough to tell. And I got to be honest, they, they pulled it, they pulled it off. I was like, wow, that was a really good movie. Less about, I I guess you could say it was less for kids than any of the toy story movies that I've seen previously. I think this really was one that, that adults could probably connect with the most in, in, in certain ways. Um, but you're a hundred percent right. I mean, the technology and software advances when you watch, this movie, as opposed to Toy Story, the first movie, it's it's night and day. It's just like, oh my god, like look how far we've come. And this doesn't spoil anything, but in the first scene is kind of like this rescue scene where Woody has to go out on a rainy night and save like a like a little you know uh, four wheeler uh, right, RC remote control right. tour RC. There's a scene. There's elements where like there's water coming down like a pipe or like the roadway. And you just cannot believe like how much probably goes into designing water to make it move the way it does and look natural. Um, that is a an achievement that is unlike anything I've ever seen. So you're a hundred percent right. I mean, the visuals in this movie are striking. Um, Storyline wise, it, it's incredible. I definitely got teary at the end. Oh my god! Okay, um, I'm glad it wasn't just me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was funny because my wife, we, my, I didn't see it with my wife. My wife and my son went to go see it in Connecticut and I was in Georgia. But um, I, my wife was like, yeah, I was okay. I was like, you didn't cry at the end? She's like, no, it was, I could see what they were trying to do, but I didn't get it. I was like, maybe it's a, it's a guy thing. I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know. As men. I, was it a, I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe it was – maybe it is a guy thing because the the chord that struck for me, of course, was – well, now we're going to spoil it. I mean, <laughs> so spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert. Well, all, right, I'll, I'll, all right, I'll non-spoil it. Um, when two characters, two main characters said goodbye to each other. I'll say it like that. Yeah. I think that mm-hmm. was just devastating. And all right, call me hyper-emotional right now, okay? Just go ahead, make fun of me. It's fine. Um, but there's something about sitting in a theater, watching the movie with your son, right? And mm-hmm. then instantly in that moment, all right, call me crazy, but instantly in that moment, I was 15 when the first one came out in 1995, and then I thought back of how old I was when I watched the first one and how old he was. This whole counter-transference thing happened in that split second. I almost 
audibly sobbed out loud. <laughs> I almost made a noise. And like the kid is sitting right next to me. I tried to like, you know, he's not looking at me because luckily we're in IMAX and IMAX is like, you know, as I sit outside next to a bug zapper, it's like a bug zapper for kids. I mean, they are totally just in there. I could have gone out and gone to world of beer across the hall <laughs> and the kid wouldn't even have missed me. And like, I mean, the kids are just sitting there enamored and you're right, Chris. Like, I think this was one of the least child toy story movies ever. Like the jokes weren't silly. They were very deep and you had to think about them. Even like the bunny and rabbit stuff with Key and Peel, which was a great addition. Those were some of the funniest beats in the whole movie. Um, those were heady, you know, even my mm-hmm. kid, Asked me, you know, Dad, why did they want to hurt the man at the carnival? I was like, no, but it's just a joke. They didn't really hurt the like. So it was kind of heady. Like you had to kind of get, you know, that it was them make believing. And afterwards, he got it. But in the moment, he kind of was just sitting there. It was really there's only a couple parts yeah. where he really laughed, which is really interesting. Where I was laughing a lot. I don't know. What do you think about the comedy and how it swayed for a kid, Chris? Yeah, it's funny because you know, I, again, I wasn't there with my son, but my wife said that that my son had the same reaction that yours did to the whole like fantasy of you know laser duck and things like that. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's and it, what's weird is that I think back to you know the the sequel to Wreck It Ralph, which had a really kind of dark twist on friendship uh, and just some dark visuals there, and I'm just wondering like like wow, okay, have we kind of crossed this boundary of truly making these movies, I guess, for a more mature audience and forgetting about the kids in a way. I mean, it's it's one of those weird things that I, I, I don't know why Disney's doing what they are doing. And, you know, I saw the trailer for Frozen 2, and that looks uber dark too. So it's like, <laughs> where are we going with this? Uh, and of course, like, did you did you get the trailer for their next movie called Onward? Um, before refresh my memory maybe it's about the it's like these two elf brothers um one of them is uh played by chris pratt i can't remember the actor who plays the other one but um it's like a short sequence where like these two like this one elf brother wants to go outside and go on this journey and the mom is like nagging them and saying no you can't no i didn't get that one anyway i didn't get that one no no okay the i read the plot line for that movie afterwards and i'm like damn it pixar you're gonna kill me with this uh it's about two elf brothers that go in the search uh they're they're searching the world for magic that still exists because they want to use that magic to spend a day with their father who died before they got to know him. Wow. And I'm like I'm like really? You're going to do this to me? You're going to do me like that, Pixar? Like I can't I can't watch that movie. I can't bring my son to that. Like I'm going to be like forget quietly sobbing. I'm going to be like a mess. I'm going to be bawling my eyes out. So, yeah, and um, you know what's really interesting is I've, you know, heard reviews and um Listen, or sorry, read reviews on Toy Story 4 and, you know, heard the backstory of the um, controversies in the Pixar studio that have happened over the years while the studio has evolved um, for better or for worse. So here we are. We have the standard, you know, and, you know, when Toy Story came out, Pixar became the standard. Um, Whether you like it or not, people look towards, you know, it looked towards Toy Story 1 as the standard for animation and storytelling, how to make an animated feature emotional for people. And Mm -hmm. it's got to be quite a juggling act inside the studio. You have all these people being replaced, all these ideas from previous developers still sitting there, and they're looking towards development movements that are still in place. And they're looking towards, you know, plot lines that are sitting there going, okay, well, the person made Toy Story 3, so we have to use some of that 
story, it worked. You know, it was a best picture nominee and yada, 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 so forth. And so I think it's kind of tough where, you know, you see, you know, I watched The Secret Life of Pets too. And that movie, you know, it definitely, I, and I think I said last week, I don't want to get critical about a kid's movie, but I, you know, took a nice little nap during it. Um, It was mm-hmm. kind of cool, but you know, the kid was laughing. So there you go. There's a movie where I just, you know, it's a kid's movie. So I did the dad thing and took a nap during it. It was great. I woke up at a certain point. I was like, the popcorn was gone. I was like, I'll go get a refill. <laughs> and so, um, you know, where Toy Story 4, I was totally enthralled, but the kid wasn't laughing. So here we are, this Pixar, the studio that everyone looks to being the gold standard. And I think that Toy Story 3 being nominated kind of made it a game changer now for better or for worse. Now people are making these quote kids movies with this. Wow. We could actually entertain kids, entertain families and win an Oscar. That's the, you know, the triple threat, the way we can EGOT this whole thing. So, Mm. um, I don't know. What do you think about that, Chris, that whole kind of controversy and people looking towards Pixar? You know, it's funny, like, yeah, there was a lot of controversy about it being kind of this misogynistic, you know, man house of, you know, writing and things like that. And um, I, I don't know, I don't, I didn't really see a lot of that in this movie, so to speak. And and I know that the initial plot for this movie was like the search for Bo Peep. And, you know, we kind of got there pretty quickly with this movie. Um, I don't know, I, 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 I don't really buy into it as much as other people might have. Uh, in terms of that controversy, but oh, people are saying that the actual plot might be misogynistic, or no, that that the that the like you know with the whole there was a lot of controversy over like Rashida Jones and right, of course, right, know, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. so like, and her saying that like it's it's a very misogynistic writing, you know, culture there, and I I don't know, I don't I didn't really get that that point of view, um. You know, in the final right, you had very st- strong female characters, actually stronger than the male characters. The, yeah. the male characters in Toy Story Four were idiots; like they were dumb. Like Woody kept making mistakes. Buzz kept, you know, and very funny. Don't get me wrong; it was they followed character. That's what they do. You know, what I mean, they kind of charge in without thinking. And where Bo Peep was kind of this kind of female protagonist that was kind of like Ray in Star Wars. It was this yeah. strong female protagonist just kicking ass and surviving on her own and. I don't know that that whole plot line of surviving on your own without an owner was such an interesting plot line. And so it ran deep and, you know, I, I don't know if they were it hit on like a lot of things, either they were talking about someone being single or married or someone being adopted into a family mm-hmm. or being on their own. It was really interesting plot line. They hit so many beats within that plot line that I think that will be analyzed for a while. And I'm not, I, I don't think we're looking too far into this movie. I, I think that they put this stuff out there on purpose. There was a lot of things flying over these kids heads, right? You know, that were just, um, I think there was one part where Bo was talking to her little sidekick, the little cop lady, and she's like, oh, you don't want to get with a man that has a kid. I've been there before, sister. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that was they're obviously talking about dating a guy with a kid. <laughs> I think that was the line. You don't want a cowboy with a kid. That's all nothing but trouble. And it flew. You know, the, the parents and I were laughing. And the rest of the kids are just sitting there like, why are these parents laughing? There right. were so many little inside jokes like that. Let me ask you this. Do you want to see another one of these movies? Well, you know, Pixar had, I want to see some new properties from Pixar, you know, um, it has really become a sequel factory and 
where they're relying on these properties. And look, they keep making money. They keep making these movies that keep making money. So it's hard for them to get out of this thing. And then they try to break out sometimes and it doesn't work out. And then the preview that we saw was for Trolls 2, which is a very highly sought after sequel. I mean, Trolls 1 was 2015. And I mean, here we are talking about these movies like they're these epic, <laughs> you know, films, but these things win Oscars and they make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about film in this century, you cannot get away from talking about superhero movies like this and animated films like this. Like we're talking about Hitchcock films <laughs> because right. these are mainstream and they win awards just like Hitchcock did. I mean, it's just it's crazy to say that, but you have to analyze these things. You have to talk about what the studio is going for. So. Personally, no, I would love for them to break off into own their own thing. But at the same time, as I was watching this one, as they're introducing more characters, I can see them doing a spinoff mm-hmm. really easily because in the back of my head, I'm like, we can't have. And unfortunately, it's, it's a kind of a bummer thinking like this. We can't have the story, Toy Story crew come back because they did have a Don Rickles line in there, but he's passed away. We can't have a Jim Varney line in here. He's passed away. You know, there's a lot of main characters that have passed away since they've made this. And so I think maybe they're setting us up for either short films about the uh, Keanu Reeves character or the Key and Peele character. I don't know. But I didn't feel like it was forced upon us. Right. Um, so I could see them doing a lot of spinoffs into this universe. Good points. Good points. Good stuff, my man. Yeah, no, well, I'm really interested to see what um, what happens, you know, down the road with the, the Toy Story franchise. I mean... I do think it. We don't need another feature film. I think they ended it again on a good note, where it's like, good, fun, done. Um, but you know, when when the Mouse House gets involved and that money starts rolling in, like it's tough to say no to it. You know, doing another one. So who knows? But um, totally. All right, so let's move on. My my first one. So this is a weird one to kind of kick things off on my end. But a couple nights ago, I had a nightmare. Very like clear nightmare where I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, I could, you know, my, my, was, my legs were sweaty. Um, and it was really like realistic, stressful nightmare that was like, it, it messed with my, it, it took a while for me to get back to sleep. And I was just like, man, that really messed with my head. Cause it was just, it was a stress dream. It was actually, it was a, I, I, I had a nightmare about like failing at work, which is like, huh. yeah, you know, no, more, stress, yeah. Right? So like some people like they, they've, you know, dream about falling off a cliff or you know you know going waking up naked or something like that no this was about work and i just it was i just found it incredibly stressful because it was incredibly realistic and i had trouble getting back to sleep so it made me think about like what do you what does this mean like what did that dream mean like what did my what 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 am i really worried about with that so i went online and i found this great article it's on a website called verywellmind.com and it's called nine common dreams and what they supposedly mean and what's nice about this article is it goes through each kind of, you know, common dream, like, you know, you're falling, you're being naked in public, you're being chased, um, dying, infidelity, like the whole nine years. What does each of these typically mean? They kind of cite, you know, stuff from doctors and, and psychoanalysts, but a couple of them I found pretty interesting. So I wanted to throw a couple of them out there for the audience in case perhaps anybody is having similar dreams. So... Ben, I don't know if you've, have you ever had a dream about losing your teeth? Oh yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Yep. So that's never happened to me, but I found this interesting that that can actually have multiple meanings. It might mean that you're worried about your attractiveness or appearance. It also might. Well, that's not it. 
I know, right? Come on now. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I'm smooth. <laughs> it also might indicate that you're concerned about your ability to communicate or concerned that you might have said something embarrassing. Oh, I never thought of that. I always thought that was just stress. You know what I mean? Mm. Like just kind of, but huh. All right. Interesting. There you go. There you go. Um, also, um, have you ever had a dream about taking a test? Uh, no, I don't think I have. No? That okay. So examinations are usually stressful experiences in which you're made to face up to your shortcomings, so to speak. So to dream of failing an exam or being late for one or being unprepared shows you feel unprepared for the challenges of waking life, which is pretty much what I had with my, my stress work, so to speak. Interesting. Um, yeah. You know, Chris, I'm a theater major. So until like this last year, I took one test for uh, my credentialing, but before then, I think it was senior year of high school. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Finally, do you have, did you ever have a dream about flying? Oh yeah. All the time. All the time. Right. Um, flying. It, they said this is actually one of the most common reoccurring dreams that people have. Um, and it basically means either that uh, on one hand, such dreams can represent the feelings of freedom or independence. But on the other hand, they can also indicate a desire to flee or escape from the realities of life. So there you go. But yeah, it just it just really got me thinking about dreams. Ben, have you ever had a dream or a nightmare that you woke up and you're just like, what what does that mean? Like, what what the hell is going on in my head? Things like that. Yeah, I'm all alone, and there's a snake in a vest. <laughs> no, that's from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, so, uh, no, I've definitely had like some crazy trip out dreams. I've had dreams where, uh. I wake up and I, I, you know what? This dream sucks because I wake up in the dream. I wake up, I take a shower, I shave, I get ready for work. I get in the car and then I wake up (laughs) and I have to do it all over again in real life. It really sucks. (laughs) It's really awful. I'm like, damn it. Like I just lived this again. I have to live it again for real. And that's totally terrible. But you know, Chris, it's kind of cool that you brought this up because you know, one thing that we haven't talked about on this podcast is, you know, it's all things entertainment, this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that entertains us the most right now in this day and age is the Internet and having all this information at our fingertips. You know what I mean? We don't have to seek a professional. We don't have to go to the library. We don't have to ask a friend. We can literally look up anything. And that is something that happens for better or for worse all the time, especially in my uh, profession. People look up, you know, self-diagnosis and all that stuff without consulting us sometimes for better or for worse, but it is a good thing. I mean, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, Chris? I, you know, I think it's a good thing. Honestly, I think, okay. I mean, I think the more that people can understand their dreams, I think the more that people analyze it and, and you, I think you just get to know yourself a little bit better, honestly. Um, well, and I'm, I'm, and, you know, some of my favorite content in movies and television kind of derive from dreamlike states. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like plots that don't really make sense. It's all it's about how you how it makes you feel. Right. Almost like a David Lynch movie. You know there what I mean? Go. Something that doesn't necessarily make sense or a Dario Argento movie where you're just watching it. And it's this dreamlike state that's just really cool. Love it. Love it. Very cool, man. So that was my first one. There you go. There you go. Well, let's segue. I was building a segue into that. Um, so speaking of David Lynch and avant-garde cinema, um, do you know who uh, Nicholas Whiting Reffin is? No. He is the guy that did Drive. Okay. Yep. And um, he did a movie called Pusher, and he did uh, a movie called um, – uh, you know, he did a couple movies with Ryan Gosling. And so he has a new kind of uh, feature, and my buddies over at – 25 years later, 
um, kind of reviewed it and the ringer kind of reviewed it. It's called too young to die and it's on Amazon. It's a limited series. I watched most of it. I'm going to say I watched half of it. Really interesting. Um, very kind of, it's a crime drama. It's a, it's very hard to describe and I don't want to spoil anything. And it's, it's less about the plot and more about, uh, Carl Jungian constructs. So Carl Jung had these, you know, he was very analytical over dreams and he has these kind of, um, these kind of constructs of people that we look towards in either content or what, how we analyze things. And so, um, you can kind of do, do like this kind of Jungian kind of, uh, interpretation of movies and song it's really interesting and this show is out there now don't get me wrong when i um recommend something on this podcast it's not for everyone i know that i definitely have some niche tastes and uh not everyone's going to get what i'm into uh this one is definitely one of those kind of niches you know so um steer clear if you like very structured kind of law and order type shows where, you know, there's a murder, the the cops investigate, and then we have the drop court, and then we find the bad guy. Stay away from this one. But Chris, the I love the camera work in this. I love the pacing of this. Just, um, I don't know how it feels. Um, so Chris, how do you feel about shows like this, where the plot necessarily doesn't make sense, um, where you feel something but not necessarily know what's going on. Does that drive you insane or do you like it? <laughs> Ooh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. Oh, I think it, this one is very slow. So okay. is, 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 are you the type of person that where like, that would drive you nuts? Like we, we, you know, my friend, Josh, you know, Josh was on the pod, like talked about how in the master, there's this like two minute shot out of focus where, you know, <laughs> what's his face. Joaquin Phoenix is running or walking into frame for like two minutes. Is that the kind of stuff that drives you nuts or do you appreciate the filmmaking? What's going on in your head? <laughs> that's a good question. I think it depends on the end result. Like if it leads, if it all, is for a purpose to get to the end and then it ties something up or there's a, we find out the reasoning for it. I'm okay. Like um, a good example would be like this season of billions. Like, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. We have no idea. And then they tie it up at the you know season finale and you're like, Oh my God, there's a show on right now on HBO called euphoria, which is the most frustrating show to watch on television right now. Right. I've heard that too. It right. That's so kind of same vein. Freaking frustrated. Just same thing, like outrageous visuals um, for what looks like no reason other than just to be outrageous. Um, and it just, it's very frustrating because you don't know what it's going to lead to. And if it doesn't lead to anywhere, then I'm just going to be like, to hell with this show. I'm done with it. Um, you know, right. well, don't get me wrong. That, that movie has drugs in it. And, and is that part of the trip in that show? Is that what's going on? No, like that's the problem. Is that like normal scenes, or at least what you think are normal scenes, they then they then trip out. But it has nothing to do with drugs. It's just like let's just do this whole scene in pink and blue lighting for no reason at all. And mm. it's just things like that, like a stylistic thing. Like you know, the, the I just did a podcast um, on on Moulin Rouge, and we're talking about the the filmmaker right. Baz Luhrmann and how he does this like frenetic editing process. Um, which almost destroys the plot and you know exposition and stuff like that in in any movie, 
and it can become very, very frustrating. So yeah, I guess the simple answer is as long as it serves a purpose toward to a means, like to a means to the end, so to speak, I'm okay with it. But if it's just doing it to do it, and then it just like, this is my style of filmmaking, man. And, and or it's like, you obviously don't get it because you're not thinking on a higher level, man. Like, I hate that. <laughs> Yeah, I got what you're saying that where that can be very hoity toity, like you don't understand. But as long as you know, because I've watched, you know, when I was a kid, I was definitely a horror fiend, you know, that's really what got me into cinema in general, right? That that got me into deep diving, because, you know, it's like all of us in the 80s and 90s, you know, I started off with Freddie Jason. You know, mm-hmm. cheesy horror, and then you start going into Hellraiser, and you're like, okay, that was interesting. You know, um, not really jump scares. You know, I mean, slow burn scares. And you're like, okay, that was interesting. What's more movies like that? And that's what got me into, you know, foreign horror movies, um, and Dario Argento mainly, and Mario Bava, where they would use lighting. You know, they would have these kind of scenes that were just blue and red, and in horror that makes sense because it's supposed to be offsetting. It's supposed to not make sense. It's supposed to make you kind of fear what's going to happen next. And then that kind of got me into, you know, blue velvet and David Lynch. And I like when there's an atmosphere and mood, but the plot is still there. You know, whether it be a bare bones plot that, that doesn't need a lot of explanation like this too young to die was, or too old to die was kind of like that. It was, the plot is very minimal. But the pacing is so – and the tone, tonally, it is so off-putting that you don't know what's going to happen next. So I think it worked in parts. But, um, you know, if, if you check out, you know, the movie – Chris, so did you ever see that movie Drive with um, – I did, yeah. Yeah. So you remember that movie, how the, the plot is very basic, but, like, there's some really creepo, violent, crazy-looking scenes in it that just are offsetting. That's how this show was. It was just this very kind of wild – um, show and Miles Teller is the main character in in the first one and he's great in it. Just okay. he um and for him you know he's played kind of the whiny kid in Whiplash which is phenom- phenomenal in that movie and just mm-hmm. kind of awesome. And this one he plays this stoic cop in the first episode. Maybe he has ten lines and he you, there's a lot of shots of him just looking off camera and just looking. You're just kind of guessing at what his brain is thinking. I think it worked in some areas, but you know what? There's certain parts of Nicholas Whiting Refn. He made a movie called Only God Forgives with Ryan Gosling, and I loved it. And uh, my friend Bobby loved it. But, I mean, it bombed critically. And I, I don't know. It, it's it's a hard thing for me to recommend because only certain people will love it. You know, David Lynch fans would love this show. Mm-hmm. Um, check it out. I'd love to hear people's opinions on this. Definitely. Awesome. Well, that's actually a good segue into my next topic we're, we're just segueing into each other look at that we're segway masters we should buy some segways and we should we'll buy a podcast on segways <laughs> just segways on segways like hey chris can stacks. you hear this can you hear this righteous bug zapper going on i am here it sounds like a rattlesnake sometimes i'm like dude <laughs> oh shit wait is there a rattlesnake <laughs> <laughs> like, you just sound like you're in the the wild and i love it that's right i'm it. podcasting for the mojave desert <laughs> nature so um speaking of tv series dude Two days from now, for recording on Tuesday the, f- the 2nd. Yes. But on Thursday the 4th, which is probably when this episode is going to air. Uh, so today, we got Stranger Things. Yes, we out. do. So I am I am ridiculously excited for season three of Stranger Things. First of all, because we talked about it, I think it was on the first podcast, where we, we weren't sure if this was going to happen or not. Uh, right, because of the, of the lawsuit thing. Right. The lawsuit. Thankfully, all that got dropped. 
the guy mysteriously said like, nope, I'm good. Like, no, uh, upon further review, like they didn't plagiarize anything. We're good. So very strange. <laughs> they rolled, they rolled the tape back <laughs> upon further review. <laughs> upon further review. Didn't, they didn't plagiarize anything. Uh, the player was inbounds. <laughs> <laughs> so that all got dropped very quickly, but we're getting season three. And other than watching the trailers, I am going into this, this season blind. I'm not going to read any reviews. Good. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. I just want to just dip in and just go. And I love the fact that, you know, for season two, they, they, it was all kind of Halloween based. So they, they released it, you know, at, during Halloween and now it's like during the summer. So July 4th, perfect time to do this. So I'm wicked excited. Ben, how excited are you for Stranger Things? What predictions? I mean, tell me everything you're thinking about this season. Go. go I ahead. really like second season. Um, they kind of lost me on the gremlin aspect. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. Kind of lost me a little. I kind of listen. I, I love the show because it makes references to the 80s, to Monster Squad, to Night of the Creeps, all the movies that I loved and grew up with. Um, those movies aren't revered as high as they should. And we can have a whole podcast on those two movies in general and the Goonies. Um, but that one was a little heavy handed of the reference. Um, it kind of was distracting for me and maybe it was because it was I was such a nerd. But I powered through the rest of the season. Um, right, I'm on I'm on board. Um, I just, I hope that Netflix can survive the end of this show. <laughs> and I think like they HBO will be with game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I just, I think that the end, I think everyone's watching this show kind of like game of Thrones. I think this, this show has broken through kind of niches, you know, niche markets, you know, where like there's certain audiences that were watching it. I think this thing has transcended and it hits so many beats and there's, you know, the rom-com fans of our generation watching it because of Winona Ryder. And, um, and then there's the nerds like us watching it. And then there's just people that like television that are watching it. I think they've kind of broken through and I think they've hit multiple generations. They have the younger generation, they have our generation and even like baby boomer generation watching this thing, you know, and everyone seems to love it. So I hope they can follow through with something after this, or they're going to spin off. I mean, spin off with this this show would be okay. I I, I wouldn't mind that. It's mm-hmm. an original property. Uh, now it is because that court case got dropped. Um, so <laughs> they're free to spin off. How would you feel about a spin off after like this season or next season? Again, it, it would have to be good. Like make it compelling. Um, I don't know if you need to do like a prequel, so to speak, but just like, hey, you know what? If this if strange things are happening in this town. What else is happening elsewhere? And there's your spinoff. Um, you know, it doesn't, I don't think you need to have it directly connected to this, these people. So to right, speak. exactly. I mean, um, so go for it. Explore this universe. All explore, you want. Explore I'm, the I'm, studio space. Exactly. You really move. Really, really move, move Gene. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I have, I have no, you know, uh, I guess you could say expectations or, or predictions of, about what's going to happen this season. I just want a kick-ass season that has me on the edge of my seat. I'm going to turn off the lights, you know, at night when I'm watching this thing and just, you know, let it, let it, let it go. Um, so to speak, but yeah, no, really, really excited for it. Also, <clears throat> this is like, you know, one, a one B with this topic also coming out uh, the week after um, July 4th. So David Harbor, who plays the sheriff, on Stranger Things. I saw this trailer. Re- I saw this trailer. <laughs> Keep going. He's Sorry. releasing a, a mockumentary on a, like his fictional father 
had the, you know, was this, you know, classically trained actor who wanted to bring plays to tell to TV screens. And it's this whole mockumentary about him trying to explore, you know, what happened with his dad's, I guess, ill-fated production of, you know, Frankenstein on TV. It looks amazing. It looks absolutely incredible. He's playing his dad. Uh, ben, you said you, you saw the trailer. What do you think about this mockumentary that's coming out? Well, I think it's it's really cool what Netflix is doing as far as having this bullpen of actors, directors, and writers. It's Whatever they're doing, just kind of like HBO, whatever they're doing, people want to return. People want to stay on and have fun with them. And it seems like, you know, when we've talked about this, they have this well of money, and they're throwing it to people to get their dream projects off the floor. So, you know, what? that's a really good sign when people just – care about the studio they're working for you know and they're not like in this contract they're not you know for instance doing the hangover three because they have to they're in this kind of creative environment here here's five million dollars make something crazy you know uh, you know here's lonely island make you know here's ten million dollars make the bash brothers or something like that make something crazy like what whatever you guys want to do go ahead and i just love that it seems like they're very hands-off and they just want content and if they're letting people creatively go nuts because, you know, we talked a little bit about Howard Stern a couple of weeks ago, right? And how when he switched to Sirius Radio, there was this freeing aspect and almost this kind of um, confinement that came with you can do anything now. You can swear. You can show nudity. There really is no limits on Netflix. There's no censor. There's no network. There's, you know, there's a TV rating that comes up, but you can do anything you want. And so for as a, a creative person, you know, like the Lonely Island or like these actors that, you know, may have a screenplay in their back pocket, they're able to do these things. So I think it's a great let's just keep going and, you know, think of the bullpen of those actors in Stranger Things. Those kids are going to grow up and at least half of them are branching out into other properties. You know, they're in the movie It, they're um, in Godzilla movies, they're they're rocking and rolling. So and hopefully they return back to Netflix and not in a contractual uh studio old school universal picture kind of way um but in a we get to create anything we want that's kind of great definitely so check out that documentary it's called frankenstein's monster monster frankenstein so yeah i can't wait to see that so all right man what else you got all right well let's keep riding on this netflix train um they have my money this this month um i finally got to watch chris uh when they see us did you get to watch that yes yes um and so i'm a little behind you know on this podcast i know that i i try my best to keep up on everything but can i be honest i mean i talked about this um two weeks ago this summer blockbuster season has not been that good um right at all you know the early reviews of spider-man are awesome so i can't wait to see that this weekend and i'm gonna go to the movies a ton this week so you'll have more content next week um but you know, for the most part, it's been very slow. These properties that were supposed to be carrying us through right now, like yesterday didn't get reviewed that well. Um, and then also there was a couple other movies that, you know, The Dead Don't Die. Um, yep. th- that had high expectations and that didn't really play through. So all these smaller pictures that were going to carry us to the blockbusters aren't really panning out these kind of high, high concept pieces. And I don't know why that is. They have great actors and great, writers directors attached to them and just the follow-through is not there um it's kind of scary when you think about things being released to the theaters and then just dropping out where you know streaming is taking over slowly but let's talk about my uh let's talk about when they see us chris when when did Mm -hmm. you when did you see when did they see us (laughs) 
literally uh, the day after it premiered. Okay. Um, because like it was all over my newsfeed. Like people are like, "You got to sit down and watch this." Um, it's it's gut wrenching. It's you know left and right. So yeah, I saw it literally the next day after it came out, and boy, that that first episode is it's something. Like it's 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 tough. It's a tough watch. I, I know I said this on the podcast. Like people were saying, like, oh, you, can, you know, I, I had to take a break and blah blah. No, you got to sit there and you got to watch it. You got to take the whole thing in. Um, because it's it is it's a gut wrenching experience. What did you what did you think watching that first episode? So, all right, call me call me dumb, call me oblivious. Um, I knew about <laughs> the case, and when mm-hmm. things are based on real life, I try not to. Like I've heard the story about the case, the Central Park Five. Uh, I watched the doc. When when did that come out? That was like five years. It was ago, a while I think. ago. Yeah, the, the Ken Burns ago. documentary. Right. Yep. I watched that. Um, and I kind of forgot about it. You know what I mean? I, I and so in a good way. So when I watched this, I was reminded of all those things. And mm-hmm. so when the verdict came down in the second episode, I was actually like floored. Because they definitely swayed the filmmakers swayed you to believe that they were going to get off, you know that yeah. their lawyer um, that was played by um, uh, the main lawyer that was played by um, for better what's what's Pacey's Joshua name <laughs> Pacey, Pacey. Uh, who was played by Pacey um, he was great in shooting holes in the defense and the um, cop stories and they really swayed you like at least some of them were getting off and I was like I knew that all of them were going to go in but I just thought. Maybe some got lighter sentences. And then when all of them went in and especially, of course, mm. the kid that was over the age of 16 who really wasn't and went to prison. Gut wrenching. The thing that yeah. hit home for me and I was telling all my coworkers just just being in the field that I'm in and working, you know, side by I'm not going to say I work in the criminal justice system. I work side by side with them a bunch with um, drug court and probation, parole, yada, yada, yada. Uh, people that have been mm-hmm. in prison and people that are on offender status when the kids got out and I'm like, all right, they would serve juvie that sucked, but now most of them are back, you know, and of course, and they started showing turmoil with, you know, especially John Leguizamo, who was fabulous in the show. All the parents were great. Amazing. Michael, Michael K. Williams was absolutely another stellar performance. That guy. Devastating. My God. And I the reason why I watched it this weekend, I listened to the podcast with Bill Simmons with Michael K. Williams, the interview, and I highly recommend everyone goes check that out. Just hearing the story behind his life is just wild. And just all the iconic characters he's already given us in what is it, 15, 20 years, you know, between mm-hmm. Omar, Chalky White, and now this one. Just iconic. Like you can't get them out of your head. Like you can't see anyone playing them except for him. Um just right. acting his ass off. Um, it, it really, when they got out, sorry, when they got out and then the parole officer goes to the kid, well, you are a level three sex offender. And I go, Oh my God, they hit, they also got offender status. Of course they are committed of the crime of rape. Of course they're offender sex offenders and how limiting and damaging to a person's life that is, um, moving forward, just the restrictions on your life and where you can go and where you can work and how you can't get a license and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And just him talking about, well, you know, when you check that felon box on this job application, that's actually freeing for you because you won't get another shift with another felon and get locked up that day. And just Mm. what a, 
it's the correct way of thinking. There's a lot of characters in the show. And the reason why I appreciated the show was there was a lot of probation officers. There was a lot of um, COs in the show, like the characters that Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily bad. They were just telling the characters the deal. Like, here's the deal, kid. Uh, You don't want to transfer because you'll get transferred farther away from your mom. Like, here's the deal. Like, and just people who have lived in the system and worked in stuff that made it very real for me. And that's why I recommend it to all Mm -hmm. my coworkers. Like I, I've, being someone that works with people in the criminal justice system that struck a chord so hard. And I was like, Oh my God, like you're kind of in this helpless situation, helping a person that's in a helpless situation. And you're just trying to be real with them and honest with them and kind of unemotional at the same time. That was so hyper real. And they could have easily swayed the whole thing into, you know, the, the judge was evil and the, the prosecutors were this evil kind of, you know, like this, like group of witches, like, <laughs> we're going to lock these kids up. But right, you, right. you got a sense that even when they went back to the bar at the end and they were like, you know, we caught the guy, we got the DNA. The cop is like, listen, you caught the other guy with these kids. And, you know, you can go online and the cops that led the case still are saying that, that they believe they were doing the right thing at the time. It was a hard case. They mm. were trying to get these confessions out of minors it, it, and whatever you believe it, they kind of, I mean, don't get me wrong. They swayed us to believe that these kids were railroaded by the system because of either you believe race or you believe um, their d- discrimination against the kids at the time. And this older generation of cops that were in there, whatever, whatever you believe, or just the system. Um, I thought that they did a great I way of they get it did a great job of skirting that neutral line do you, do you get what i'm saying chris yeah definitely definitely and you know as i'm watching it as an actor and someone who appreciates just good acting i mean that that sounds very yeah, elementary right. way to put it but just right. good acting you know I, I said this on the podcast earlier i said you're you're watching certain people do career best work and that just that just it, it's inspiring as a performing artist to watch that uh, on screen and the young man did you have you watched the entire series yes okay so the young man who plays the the mentally disabled uh one the oldest one who right. and we spend that like much of the bulk of that third episode is with him my god like give that guy every award possible for that performance like that was just heartbreaking raw like when he's talking in the jail cell to his you know, the girlfriend and to his mom and, and, and his like transgender sister or, or yeah, cross-dressing and his transgender yeah, right. sister. I mean, I was, I, I remember watching that episode with my mouth on the floor. Like my jaw was on the floor watching this kid turn in a performance like that. Um, and also this, the mom um, whose name escapes me, but you know, the only thing I really knew her from was Reno 911. Right. Exactly. And she's acting her ass off. Which is like, I'm like, oh, I like I there were that scene where she's throwing out the transgender um sister oh out God. of the house and she's just laying into her about you know God and I I had my hands on my head just like marveling in her performance like it was just like unbelievable cuz again when when you, when you get that palpable feeling on the other side as a viewer of like oh like you just you can feel this like angst in yourself while you're watching this performance, it's unbelievable. Well, you know what? And also, you know what helps those actors too is great writing mm-hmm. because even the quote bad guys, the cops and some of the parents, they had their justifications of what they why they were doing it. So you had that scene where the mom is kicking out the transgender daughter, 
But then you also had the scene where she's visiting her son. She's ultra religious. And then they're quoting scripture together. And here's this mom in this helpless situation and she's turning towards religion. And so you kind of see where that religion would come into play and how it would take over her life. Um, Also, you had, you know, um, Michael K. Williams character who you can see why he would tell his kid, just do what these cops say there. I don't want to see you get killed, Mm -hmm. meaning he has seen people get killed you know, in prison or his past criminal history. And the reason why he avoided the court, the courtroom, you know what I mean? He just kind of went off and avoided the whole thing. So like, it's not like he's a quote bad guy. You can kind of see where a character or a person like that would do something like that. Like where his PTSD, and I talk about that all the time, how prison, the criminal justice system is traumatizing. Mm -hmm. You can have PTSD just from being in jail and prison, of course. And we're seeing that more and more and more and why we're turning towards treatment, let more treatment, less lockup, you know, and right. that's the reason why you're, you're creating PTSD inside the system and creating more problems than you're solving. I just thought the whole thing, it brought up everything. It reminded me of the series, uh, the night of Chris, you saw that, right? Oh yeah. 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 Another and and it's really interesting that both of them have Michael K. Williams and he's just, he's picking great roles. He's picking great work and HBO, yet again and netflix yet again has this bullpen of actors that they're just trading back and forth it's great love it love it good stuff good stuff um man we're just we're just riding a, a netflix train because my next one and i didn't <laughs> do this on purpose i literally just was thinking about awesome things that i took in this past week um so i i, I know i talked about this on the previous podcast but i'm gonna talk about it again i am like all in deep diving into bojack horseman and yeah um i just i finished uh, the latest season. Um, and there's an episode called free churro. Have you ever heard about this episode called free churro on Bojack House horseman? I've heard about it. I've heard about it. it. Okay. The entire is spoiler alert. Um, the entire episode is a 20 minute monologue. It is literally Will Arnett as Bojack horseman giving a eulogy at a funeral. And it's just him at the podium talking. There's no cutaways. There's no flashbacks. There's no, like every now and then they'll do a different camera perspective. So you see the casket and things like that. But other than that, it is just him. It is a remarkable 20 minutes of viewing. Like you almost don't even need to, just like, you know, we talked about that episode of um, Barry where, you know, with the the daughter where you don't really need to know anything really much about the series to enjoy that episode for what it is. Same thing with this one. It is 20 minutes of just the most unbelievable written monologue. I've one of the most unbelievable monologues I've ever heard. It is a phenomenal watch. And, and well, Chris, I mean, sorry to cut you off, but like, you know, we're kind of on this, this kick. We're on this train this week, actually. I don't know. You know, also the, the Netflix train and also how these shows are taking this avant avant garde route, like not necessarily in tone, you know, like the one, the two, um, too old to die young. Yep. Um, that is avant-garde, but the way that they're playing with the format of these shows, I, I, you can really point to Atlanta and Barry for kind of stepping up their game and being bold in front of, as far as live action. But like, like you guys were talking last week, like South Park did this a while, a long time ago where they would have a whole episode that would just be, that would just switch everything up. 
mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, the kids watching Russell Crowe fight fights around the world or, you know, the kids turn into anime uh, ninjas or something like that. Right. Where they would just take these bold choices. And like you were watching this like, wait, a 23 minute episode um, doesn't have to be like take place in the house. And then, you know, the main character comes in and life laugh track starts. Um, you can have main characters walking around a parking garage looking for their car or something like that. Yeah. Um, like in Seinfeld, you can you can see this evolution in sitcom television in that 23 minute, 30 minute episode. And correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, are we going to look back at this time? I don't think too far into the future and look at, you know, shows like BoJack Horseman, shows like Barry, shows like Atlanta and shows like When They See Us and go – okay, why weren't we giving Oscars to these shows? Like there's nothing in the cinema that came out that matched this level of writing and acting. And were we all dumb at the time? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. That's a really good point. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you, you watch this episode, you know, the free churro episode of Bojack Horseman, which if you go online and just look up free churro, it's, it's gaining like legendary status. Um, it is an achievement in voice acting that is almost unparalleled. Uh, you, I've never seen an animated character talk like this uh, in the way that Will Arnett. And it's it's weird because like Will Arnett's a good actor. He's been he's done some good stuff. He is doing career best work in, in just voice acting. And sadly, there's just not really a, a, a prestigious enough award for that so to speak. I mean, there's an Emmy for, you know, it's like a daytime Emmy for voice acting, but like, it's, that's, that's all you really get. And I'm like, there's gotta be more, there's gotta be something else. So yeah, your point of like, how are we not giving Oscars to these things? And you know, for, you know, I know that, remember that controversy of like Steven Spielberg saying that like Netflix movies should be eligible for Oscars. Like screw that, forget that. Like whatever, man. Um, The medium has changed and it's, with as streaming gets bigger and these projects, you know, more and more get pumped out. I mean, and they're taking bold choices. I'm in for, you know, not even worrying about box office receipts because the membership is already there. That's huge. So like, I'm with you. Like, I think, yeah, five, five to 10 years from now, we're just going to be like, what were you thinking? Yeah. I think, I think it's going to come to that because just even talking about the night of um, that came out, you know, two years ago, three years ago. I mean, Good movies came out that year, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know that Raz Ahmed, I think, is his name Raz Ahmed. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, it's hard for me to point to another performance that year that was better than that, or Michael Caine Williams in that show, right. a multifaceted character played by a multi-talented actor. I mean, you can't get to that level of a character, or it's hard to inside of a two-hour movie. You know, you need three or four hours to kind of dig dig into this. I mean, look at the arcs that you just saw in When They See Us, these kind of crazy arcs. I don't know. I I just think that maybe 20 years from now, these actors are going to get lifetime achievements and maybe they'll never be in a movie. (laughs) Maybe Donald Glover will get a lifetime achievement or Bill Hader for his work in Atlanta and Barry and (laughs) <laughs> the Oscars are going to be sitting there going, oh, yeah, and they were in this handful of rom-coms, but uh, also they did <laughs> this best yeah. work on TV. It's going to be this weird kind of – I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get to this yeah. point where um, you know, there's going to be makeup Oscars. Like let's say Bill Hader two years from now is in uh, Kirsten Wig, kind of cutesy drama comedy. He wins best actor, and everyone's like, yeah, that movie was okay, but 
he really earned it on Barry or, you know, Donald mm-hmm. Glover plays an okay guy in this movie. He didn't write or direct. He just did it for the money and they give him an Oscar. And it's like, yeah, that movie was okay. But you know, he just got it for his, his performance on Atlanta. I think we're going to get to that. This, these kind of makeup awards that are just going to be very bizarre. And like you said, the format's changing. I think the Academy has to start recognizing this stuff. And we do as, as a people, you know, and maybe the Emmys will become bigger because they totally. made that shift a couple of years ago when, you know, Handmaiden's Tale was nominated and all the streaming services started winning all the awards. So uh, they've kind of, wo- they got, they got woke to all this. So yeah. I don't know. So what's, so what's the, if you can do a quick synopsis of this, what, what happens in this Bojack Horseman, Chris? Literally his, his, you know, spoiler alert, but his, his mother dies. Okay. He's giving a eulogy and he's talking about how difficult his relationship with his mother is and how she wasn't supportive and all this, but it's just the way he's explaining it and also trying to be funny and also like going on, on tangents about like, you know, the free churro thing comes from the fact that like he walks into a Mexican, you know, a Taco Bell or something like that. And the, the checkout person says, how's your day been? And he's like, you know, my mom just died. How am I supposed to answer that? And he says to the person, like, my mom just died. And I guess the person at the checkout counter starts crying. And he's like, now I got to comfort this girl. <laughs> and at the end, she's like, would you like a free churro? And he's like, yeah, my mom just died and I got a free churro. So it's just, it's such a <laughs> revealing episode. And I don't want to spoil it for you because you're going to, I hope you watch it. But okay. the punchline at the end of the episode is so freaking good. It is, I was rolling with laughter. Um and it's the simplest freaking punchline in the world, but it's so well delivered. Um, and again, it just, it's, it's a, it's you you, I feel like I was watching a one act play. Wow. Like forget that it was an animated TV show. This is a one act play uh, with one of the greatest punchlines I've ever seen at the end. So yeah, take 20 minutes of your day and just watch that episode. Free churro season five of Bojack Horseman. It's, it's totally worth it. Well, you know what? And I've listened to, you know, multiple, we were talking about Stern. I've listened to multiple Stern um, interviews with, you know, um, working actors today. And I think it was with, it was Will Arnett. There was a couple, you know, uh, Steve Carell was on there. Will Arnett was on there. And when Stern does the rundown of their movies, he goes, you're one of the highest grossing actors of all time, you know, to these guys, because their voice is in the Lego movie or Lego Batman. You know, these movies mm-hmm. make a ton of money. Will Arnett is hilarious in those movies. And, Stern always asked them, like, you don't get the recognition, you know, screw George Clooney and Brad Pitt. You are gold. When you do a voice in a movie, <laughs> the movie makes billions of dollars. You're the most bankable star of all time because for, you know, I don't know, a month of work in the studio, the movie makes close to a billion dollars. And it's really interesting to think about acting and performances in film like that, where you don't you don't have to take a picture of yourself. You just have your voice and these movies just like toy story four make a ton of money. Totally. Totally. There you go, my man. All right. What's your number four this week? Number four. Let's switch it up. Okay. Let's get, let's get out of this. We we've been on this train. <laughs> All right. I think we've, uh, this, uh, this, uh, podcast brought to you by Netflix. Uh, no, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about baseball. Oh, okay. A couple stories about baseball. Um, this weekend was, the London series, the first one ever between the Red Sox and Yankees. I thought it was, um, you know, we've had football over there in London for a while now. I love Sunday morning football. I think it's coming back 
at least two or three games again this season. I love that. It's great. It keeps mm-hmm. the fantasy day just awesome because you wake up at nine, start watching. It's great. Um, these games were out of control. The first <laughs> game was 17 to 13. The second game was 12 to eight. And as a Brit, you know, with your your concept of baseball being a slow sport, it must have been. I mean, you, it must have been thrilling to watch a seventeen to thirteen game with multiple home runs, multiple foul balls, and you see these British people catching foul balls. They're freaking out, calling home <laughs> on the jumbotron, freaking out because they had to make. I guess they had to make an announcement saying. Folks, you get to keep the balls if it goes. It's a foul ball or home run because they were so used to throwing a soccer ball back or a cricket ball, back, right, whatever it is. Right. And it was just such an awesome thing to watch. That still in this day and age of the internet and everyone knows everything, that sports can still transcend joy and transcend cultures and bring joy to another culture. Uh, Chris, what did you? Right. I mean, even though the Red Sox lost, what did you think about the games? What did you think about the whole thing? Well, I mean, as a as an American baseball fan who's used to this game, it was it was a tough to watch that series, you know, because they got swept and it was just awful. But um, I did appreciate the enthusiasm from the London crowd. I did. I mean, it was like it almost looked like the, you you had like twenty thousand you know nine year olds at their first baseball game. Like they were just freaking out left and right. Like, oh my god! Like, look at the way they swing the bats and like things like that. Um, I like the fact that they were kind of marveling at all these elements of the game. Now, do I want a full-time franchise in England? Absolutely not. Like, I don't want that to ever happen. Oh, really? That was my follow-up question. Why not? Why not? Oh, Jesus. No. Because um, it, it's an American sport. I mean, it, it's it's a North American sport. I mean, I know we've got that one Canadian team. Um, and I just think for, for players and scheduling and – I don't know. I just I don't like this this idea of global expansion. Like, do I maybe do I want England to come up with their own baseball professional baseball league and, and have do their own thing? A hundred percent, yes. Like, That'd be cool. All right, now you're talking. That'd be good cool. for them. Like, I mean, and that's why we have things like you know we we used to like the World Baseball Classic and things like that. I like that idea of other leagues, um, you know, forming in other countries. I love the fact that Europe and China have these amazing basketball leagues and things like that. But I don't think the NBA or the NFL and major league baseball need to expand, you know, globally, so to speak. All right. Well, all right. So you brought up, you brought up a point that baseball is an American sport. What if it expanded to central or South America? Yeah. See, I, I even, I even have an issue with that. I don't really. How about Cuba? How about Cuba? The 51st state? I still have an issue. I still or Puerto Rico. Sorry, Puerto Rico is the fifty-first state. Sorry, I still have an issue with that. I mean, why is that? Why is I don't that? know. Because I... travel wouldn't be that bad, you know. Miami, Marlins, you're right. or, you you're know, right. everyone's right there. I mean, I mean, maybe it's it's that I'm not I'm that stupid purist, just being like, <laughs> well, then all the baseball continental be United in, States, all baseball should be playing Cooperstown <laughs> then or something with bare hands. Right. And we all have like you know bare hands, handlebar mustaches or something. <laughs> You have to pay the the ref um, a quarter if you swear. Or <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I I just see this is. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I even had issues with them like doing like um, interleague play on a regular basis rather than having it just. All right, like, that being that drives special. me nuts. That drives me insane. Okay, right. so I'm I'm with you on that one. There are some things yeah. that just shouldn't be messed with. And I do think 
I do think that baseball needs to make up their mind on the designated hitter. Like either everybody does it or nobody does it. That's just my feeling on the whole DH thing. But um, I don't know. I just I. Now my second my second story about baseball is an article. Um, let's see where it's from. I believe it's the Ringer. Just talking about Shohei Otani, one of my favorite players, new players out right now that's playing for the Angels. Mm, the yeah. guy is going berserk. Um, I definitely gambled on him, and it's paying off in dividends as a DH. He's not pitching this year, and the guy hit for a cycle. Um, <laughs> the couple weeks ago, the first Japanese-born player to hit for the cycle. I guess Ichiro never did it, um, and you can look that up on YouTube. It's it's quite amazing, and his swing is just so crazy, and he just when he hits a home run, he does it with such ease, and his both his feet are moving inside the box, which is something you just don't mm-hmm. teach anyone to do. Um, but there you go, Chris. There is someone from a Japanese league coming over and kicking ass. So that kind of, I don't know, it goes against your point of, you know, I get what you're saying. You're not saying that other countries shouldn't play baseball, but they shouldn't have no. a major league baseball in them. You know, and maybe maybe the answer is to do something down the road. I mean, this is like a, a crapshoot, but like do something like what soccer does, where you have champions of various leagues that go on and play in this like champions tournament so to speak so like the major league baseball world series champion would go on and play against the latin american champion or the japanese champion or you know something like that like i could get behind that 100 percent. like give me right we were just talking about how on the olympics you get you know you and me both get fired up about team usa or women's world cup who is who are kicking ass right now it's awesome um yeah, I get fired up about that stuff, and I'm really not a big soccer fan. But you know, when I was sitting in the locker room in Lee Mass, you know, I was sitting there just we were just watching uh, Cameroon versus uh, England or something. It was an awesome game, and we were just sitting there cheering. It was great. So I don't know. I I think there's an answer there, mm-hmm. and I don't think I'll be bold. I uh, I don't think the way the Major League Baseball is running right now with the commissioner and all the GMs. I don't think they have an answer that's going to make everyone happy Um, because you have purists out there. Of course, there's fanboys and purists, yada, yada, yada. But just the way that they run the league, trying to please everyone, I think they just need to make a decision and go for it. Because, Chris, I really feel like something needs to happen as far as team mexico team puerto rico or i i really feel like there there's room to grow mm-hmm. or get rid of or cut some of the dead the dead weight in the league and go for it and something that i've always pushed for is you know you see it working in the nfl and nba is salary caps and taxing teams that spend above their salary cap i think that really needs to be enforced because you know the same big two teams have all the firepower again you know and whether it works out, it's kind of great, you know, that the Yankees went out and spent all this money last year and they lost in the postseason. I loved every second of it, but it's still not a balanced play field as far as I see. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just still see the major markets having way more money than the little markets. I, I don't know. Having been to the Cincinnati Reds game and 500 people in the stands, I get it. But I don't know. Something needs to happen yeah. with the sport because people are not tuning in and Shohei Otani and this London series should have been like the biggest televised thing ever. I mean, Shohei is on right now and no one's watching him. And my dad was like, imagine if he was on the Yankees. Imagine if he was on the Sox or even just 
a bigger East Coast team or even yeah, East Coast is where it's at. I I I don't know. Even the Mets, if Shohei Otani is on the Mets, like people would be going insane right, right now. Right. Um, and so something needs to happen that just revitalizes the sport, you know. And I remember Keith Overman did this whole piece on Wrigley Field years ago, just talking about how, you know, Wrigley was one of the last was the last stadium to have lights and all their games were played during the day. And that was great because kids could watch the game every single day on WGN. You know what I mean? Whether you be a Red Sox fan, Yankees fan, whatever you are, you still had a game during the day and you could you were a kid. You could go to the game if you lived in Chicago um, and that helped bring in the younger generation. I just see baseball fans getting older and older and i don't know something needs to happen Chris. definitely i'm with you i'm with you yeah dude. we'll see all right so for my number four <clears throat> ben let me ask you a question would you get excited for a movie or excuse me a musical about the life and times of neil diamond <laughs> with his music in it yes um is there <laughs> is there gonna be a section about the jazz singer because i want to know more about why he made that movie <laughs> Good question. That unknown. Um, well, <laughs> either way, we're going to get it because uh, news oh, broke great. this week that there is now uh, the writer, <clears throat> screenwriter of Bohemian Rhapsody is working on a Broadway musical based on the life of Neil Diamond. And I sat back and I said to myself, what is so compelling about Neil Diamond's life that is warrants a, a, a musical? I don't, I don't know about the personal struggles of, of Neil Diamond. But, um, and then I, I looked up the, the Will Ferrell sketch from SNL, which is fantastic. Oh, so great. So yeah, if so they then, can top that, if, if, <laughs> if they can give me, if it's, if it's starring Will Ferrell, I'm, I'm all in, I'm buying front row tickets. <laughs> can you buy season <laughs> tickets for a Broadway show? <laughs> um, I just, it, it, and it's, it's unfortunately, it's the latest like bio musical. This is the new wave of musicals on Broadway and it is becoming infuriating to people that like all we're getting now is like, you know, we have the share show, uh, which is all about the life and times of share. And then this coming year, we've got uh, a Tina Turner one. We've got yeah. the temptations. We've got Michael Jackson coming. Um, it's, it's like this never ending parade of bio musicals and people are just clamoring for original stories and things like that. Um, so again, like, you know, it's one of those things where what are we doing on Broadway? Like what I understand that you know, we need to make money. These things are very expensive, but it are, is just taking us a, a songwriter's catalog and then like looking at their life and trying to put their life story on stage. Is that the answer? I don't know. What do you think about all this? Well, you know, it's, it's putting butts in the seats. I get mm -hmm. it. You know what I mean? And it's, you can have some risky stuff, but also you can have the, you know, season ticket holders of your traveling company, um, your traveling company warehouse, you know, or I'm sorry, your, your traveling company theater, um, you know, go and see it and be happy with it because they know the music. I get it. It's a duality. You know what I mean? And we talked about on the show how like, you know, some like local theaters around here won't do Glengarry Glen Ross, of course, because it's risky and stuff. There's lots of swears because they'll scare off the season ticket holders, you mm -hmm. know, um, where, um, Chris, I I shared a video with you and Josh. Did you watch that video about how um, musical biopics keep rehashing the same storylines over yes. and over again? Yeah. Yep. Um, 
And that was, I mean, that's not my YouTube pick, but it's, a, I hope everyone goes on YouTube and watches this. It's by that Patrick H. Williams. I think that's his name. Um, he, I've, I've kind of promoted him a couple times. He's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how all of these music biopics, yeah, Patrick H. H. Williams, he, they hit the same beats over and over and over again. And he makes the point if any of these people that made these movies watched the movie Walk Hard with Dewey Cox, um, they wouldn't have made these movies because it's if you watch it in those in that eye, you can kind of see the same thing over and over and yeah. over again. Um, and so, Chris, I mean, I am definitely a musical novice. Uh, it's not my favorite format of play and, and theater, but correct me if I'm wrong. This I mean, I went and saw A Boy From Oz with Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just did a, a revival show this weekend where he just did his music, his theater musical hits. Like he did Les Mis and he did Boy From Oz. Yeah, he's doing this like MSG. world tour concert thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and one, a friend of my parents went to it at, at MSG, I think this weekend yep, it was. Yep. And um, that guy's freaking awesome and talented. I got to see him perform this and he won the Tony that year. It was awesome. And that was a, you know, uh, Peter Allen, the guy, the boy from Oz. Yep. Um who had a, a crazy life that that does that musical deserved to be made <laughs> that story deserved to be tell told and what was great about it is you really didn't know you know the the music was famous as far as you know Liza Minnelli and uh, musical theater but it wasn't you know Cracklin Rose or something <laughs> like it wasn't like a pop song right um would you say that these music biopics stem from that and like shows like Jersey Boys and stuff like that well i think that's the ceiling I think when okay. when they when they think about these things, the the ceiling is Jersey Boys or you know a, a beautiful, which is based on the life of Carol King. And right, um, but the problem is there's also the, the basement, and that's more than more than not. That's what happens with a lot of these musical, you know, these bio musicals, so to speak, is they don't really work out. It's it it usually is a money grab to some extent, um, and it just you can't really find a compelling storyline. So that's why with you know, Neil Diamond and really Tina Turner too. I mean, we've already gotten a great Tina Turner biopic and that was what's love. Hell yeah. What's love got to do. Right. Phenomenal. So is this musical going to break any new ground that we haven't seen already? Is it going to, you know, breathe new life into Tina Turner's, you know, history and things like that? I don't think it will. Um, so therefore it's like, should we even pursue this? But I don't know. It's, it's, there's, with Broadway, especially nowadays, because these musicals cost tens of millions of dollars to get up on this stage, the problem is finding a, a truly original story that's captivating enough to make well over a million dollars a week on Broadway. So, um, and we're seeing a lot of these newer, you know, original story musicals, no matter how good they are, they fizzle out way too quickly because they just, they can't captivate enough but then no. you know with a tina turner musical or neil diamond then you get all the neil diamond fans to show up for this thing and um yeah i just I, I, part but i think part of that that drive for originality just dies so yeah i mean i get it from a business standpoint mm-hmm. if i owned a theater or if i was a musical theater writer um 
or composer, it's a win-win for everyone. It doesn't tarnish the career of the person's music. You know what I mean? Neil Diamond will be fine. Cher will be fine. Everyone that it's based on Temptations will be fine. You know, all their, you know, families collecting their money or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. the Temptation franchise or (laughs) whatever you call it. Um, It will be fine. It's not like it's their fault that they're making this bad musical. They're fine. You know, their legacy will live on and maybe even grow. And then they get paid for all the music. You know, they get residuals. The theater company's happy because it's a safe play. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They can sell the rights. People will go see it. They'll put butts in the seats. And everyone goes home happy. But like you said, like we've talked about people buying up IP and people buying up the rights to everything. Where's the creativity? Right. And that that YouTube video, it it, it really impresses upon how formulaic these movies are and these musicals are and all the musicals hit the same beats the movies do you know whether it be ray or walk the line they hit the same beats Mm -hmm. um over and over again and you know just because we know the music does this and listen this isn't a knock on neil diamond Uh, to me it seems like he had a very kind of I don't know. Okay. Life. It seems like it all worked out. <laughs> like, I mean, this is a good thing. It's a good like, thing. I, yeah. Maybe there's some weird drug sex addiction, like the Will Ferrell <laughs> sketch that we don't know about. Um, but to me, it seems like everything kind of worked out. We made some money. We were famous and we sing at Red Sox games here and there. We're still touring rock and roll. I mean, I don't know. The controversy would be, I don't know. That's why we got the Will Ferrell sketch. I think it's because they picked Neil Diamond because he is so, you know, ho-hum. Like what controversy could be in his past? And yet <laughs> – like this song is fueled by my hatred of immigrants. Like it's phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And, and that, that video really hits on, you know what I mean? You can make a biopic about everyone and have it just hit the same beats. And they actually make in the video, they make a joke about biopics making that video, which is just genius. There's some YouTube videos that are just so genius. I was watching that thing. I'm laughing. And that's why I said it to you and Josh. I'm like, oh, my God. It's it's like a self-parody of parody. It was great. What? And the guy just hit hit everything. And I don't know. That's that's. So, Chris, is the fear for you? OK, so let's let's talk about the big fear mm-hmm. in this. The fear is, of course, stifling creativity. Then people are scared to make a original musical and you know every 10 years we'll be blessed with something crazy like hamilton or something like that um is the fear that this will get old and really damage musical theater and broadway in the long run i think i think we're headed down that path i really do and you know maybe that's a hot take maybe people are thinking i'm overreacting and you know being a little bit of a chicken a little here with the skies falling but um there is, I don't think so. There, yeah, there is that fear that we we Broadway is going to become too commercialized. Now, I, I always get, I always understand that it's going to be commercialized to a standpoint because it has to be. It's a tourist attraction for most of the cases. Exactly. But it doesn't need to be Vegas, and you know that's the problem is that we're 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 going down that route, and even more so when you've got these these singers and songwriters are coming in doing what are called Broadway residencies. So they, you know, they they occupy a Broadway theater for two months at a time and they just do concerts and things like that. Like that's, we're getting, we're going down that road. And the problem is, is that, you know, I attend, did you ever get to attend the Eugene O'Neill musical theater festival when you're in Connecticut? No, no, I didn't. So this is an amazing thing that happens in, in Watertown, Connecticut. 
and uh, or mystic, excuse me, down by like that way. And um, it's basically a festival of new musicals. So it's all these like really famous composers, like guys that, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda premiered some of his stuff there. Um, Tom Kitt, like, you know, these guys that have done amazing things, but they're premiering their new work there. And a lot of people, a lot of producers look at that stuff and they still think, ah, it's too, it's too risky. It's too much of a roll of the dice rather than just, you know, believing in something, you know, they got to say, well, well, is it based on a movie? Is it, do people know about it? Is it marketable? Is it marketable? Right. Can we put like a big name? Can we, can we put a Hollywood star in this thing? Um, like for instance, there's a great new musical um, coming out called um, uh, Superhero, which is all about, it's kind of like a, a, like a smaller take on, on, you know, comic books and things like that about like this guy who, who believes he's a superhero and things like that. It, it's an incredible musical. Is it going to get a Broadway one? Probably not likely. Like, and that's, that's sad because mm. it just doesn't yeah. have that, that wow factor. And, you know, this past week, Moulin Rouge, uh, the, the movie, the musical adaptation of the movie just opened on Broadway this coming fall, Jagged Little Pill, a musical based on the album, Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette is coming to Broadway and things like that. And it's just, uh, you know, and the, and the David Bowie musical biopic is coming out yeah, too. Like it's slated for, I think late next year. Like, so it's just like, what are we doing? What are we doing guys? So I don't know. I, my hope is that we, we, we start to, you know, buck the trend. I think what need the, the one thing that does need to be pointed out to a lot of those theater people is that the winners of best musical, for the past, I think like five years, were all musicals that started in small public theaters, like the public theater in New York, where that supports independent shows and 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 things like that. So they, so the big Hollywood musical adaptations and things like that, those have not won any Tony Awards, you know, for the past five years, so to speak. So you know, there are still people that believe in those those original stories. It's just we we need more support for that. So. There you go. Well, and it, are we going down that path? I mean, listen, I always say this with, you know, the understanding that I am really not a big music, you know, that's your forte, mm-hmm. music and theater, you know, especially modern stuff. Um, are we going down that path of that? Remember uh, way back in, I think it was 0304, that Spider Man U2 musical that never got off. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Where. It, where music theater was in big trouble back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, shows were closing, theaters were closing that were open for a hundred years. You know what I mean? Like, are we going to go down that path where we have this fallout? Um, I think- already there's a fallout against um, Bohemian Rhapsody. That movie just came out. Yeah. And I think people are already almost seeing how kind of cheesy it is and how the fallout behind we've seen this already. Yeah. We we've done this, you know, Ray was a great musical um, kind of movie because his life was fraught with just, you know, um, hardship. And, you know, so that was the main story. But when you try to cram too much into a two hour, either, you know, movie or three hour musical, it becomes kind of like a joke. It becomes like, all right, this is the 15 minutes we're going to work on drug addiction. And this is the 15 minutes we're going to work on his, uh, he can't, uh, he's divorcing his third wife. And it it almost becomes a parody. Like, you know, when you have that much drama in your life, it it deserves to be a TV show that goes on forever. You know, imagine Ray, the show where it's like, okay, this, this is going to take place in 1959, like 10 episodes. There's so much, (laughs) there's so much drama in that. I mean, I just watched, you know, 
when they see us. And there's so much drama within one court case that it can span six hours. And when you try to cram so much into a musical, and that's what this YouTube video talks about, it becomes a joke. It's like, oh, uh, this minute 30 seconds is about him divorcing his wife and finding another love or this, you know, five minute scenes about his drug addiction and homosexuality or something, right. you know what I mean? It becomes like a joke. It, they become a caricature of themselves. It's, and that's such, that can hurt someone's legacy as far as um, the way that they are portrayed on the screen. Definitely. Definitely. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. All right. What's your number five for this week? All right. Number five. All right. Um, I was going to go down another path. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. And like I said, I have, <laughs> we did the three banger last week, so I have so much content. Um, but I want to talk about this great article I read on deadspin.com about when fandom becomes a, is the problem. Mm. And it was a great article. I can't recap the whole thing because it, it touched upon many examples of fanboys running the internet trolls and actually swaying what studios do as far as movies yeah. and actually uh, swaying their content. I mean, I think we kind of went through a little bit of that with game of Thrones, how they were scared to go down certain avenues because they read on the internet that someone guessed the ending or someone guessed that this was going to happen or someone was making fun of, you know, something in a meme. And now we're like, Oh, well we can't have that in the show because it's already a parody. So next season, let's cut that out. Chris, what do you think about this culture? I mean, here we are talking a podcast about entertainment where we do make fun of things that we hate and uh, things that we love. <laughs> right. I try to sway as positive as I can on this show, um, but I am guilty of this, you know, making fun of certain things in great films. Um, what do you think about that and the creative process behind filmmakers nowadays where fans interfere with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think, you know, there's, I think there's a difference between being critical of something to the, and then also having become a toxic fandom, so to speak, if that makes sense. Um, right. Like you and I might not like star Wars, the last Jedi um, for very good reasons, but you and I are also not going to go on Twitter and shame um, Kelly. Um, gosh, what's her name? The, the, the Asian oh, woman who had to, was it Rose? Yes. Her name Rose, Rose in the movie. Yes. Right. Rose. Who had to turn off her Twitter and get off social media because she was being, harassed and bullied by star Wars fans. who didn't like her character in the movie. Like we're not that stupid and crazy. Right. Or, and they, and they talked about uh, the captain Marvel fanboys too. Right. And how she had to kind of lash out at them too. And you know, like that, did I feel that that moment in Avengers Endgame, spoiler alert, where all the women got together and saved Spider-Man? Did I feel it was forced? Absolutely. But do I think it ruined the movie? And the, I, I, you know, I don't know if you read, there was a story out there that like some guy, took Avengers Endgame and like edited all the women out of it. And he's like, finally a movie for the, you know, the real fans and blah, blah. I'm like, screw that guy. He's not, he's no, <laughs> yeah, screw that he's guy. no real fan. He's probably never felt the touch of a woman. Screw that dude. Um, <laughs> worst episode ever. <laughs> worst episode ever. <laughs> like I do, I think there's a difference. And I, I, and on the sad thing is I think a lot of times when people are just simply being critical, they get lumped into toxic, toxic fandom, which is unfair, but also at the same time, the toxic fandom ruins it for everybody else. So yeah, like I, I, I hate, I hate the fact that certain studios, especially Disney um, do this where they, they sometimes will, will, you know, they put their decision-making based on, on fans that really don't know what, I guess you could say true fandom is. 
I guess. You, I mean, I, I would yeah, challenge all those people. On yeah. That, it's, it's so tough too, because you know, when I'm critical about something, I tried to take a, you know, see the forest from the trees, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, I tried to look at the whole arc of a character or a story. And then I, I, I can find faults, faults in something, you know, in my very limited um, knowledge of how to write a screenplay or a play or, you know, how a character works inside a play. I, I, I know small things that, you know, how you, if you set up something in a movie, you need to pay it off. Right. And when something kind of is at fault, you put something out there and it doesn't pay off. I'm like, okay, that's a problem in the screenplay. Like I've seen enough movies and I've been in enough plays that I know stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I know what two two 2d characters feel like when I'm playing them in movies. And I know when I can see them on screen where like you have a good actor, but it's a bad part. Um, So I kind of try to, when I'm critical about something, I try to kind of take all those things into account. I just don't kind of harp on something because of my own, bias or i try not to yeah and yeah that's it's so tough it's just, chris and i mean yeah. and i know we're we're getting to that realm of you know mental health and mental illness and people that are not mentally healthy having access to things like twitter and instagram and facebook to the point where you know, here's a good example i mean when and when when um uh infinity war came out right like chris pratt got all these like hateful messages saying that like star lord like like caused the snap because in the movie they're about to take off the 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 glove and the infinity gauntlet and he punches thanos and wakes thanos him up in the face right and every and people started hating on chris pratt for that and it's like there's there's a warp of reality there where people are just taking their anger out on the first you know, on on the most easy target they possibly can and it's just dumb it's stupid it's dumb it's toxic it's dangerous um you know thankfully these these actors are stronger people than i think they're given credit for but um you know it it can have some really serious repercussions so right i mean think of think of you know and actually this might be the problem with you know we've talked a lot about dc universe versus mcu um where is DC just because there's so many hands in the pot. There's so many people, you know, working at it that, you know, Oh, here steps in this new director, this new writer. Are they listening to the wrong person where Kevin Feige doesn't listen to that shit? He's like, no, we're, we're following the storyline. <laughs> Don't care what the internet says. This is what happens. It's right. It's the infinity war guys. Who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? I can tweak it here and there, but I'm going to, I have the money. I have the studio backing me. Let's rock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were just talking about, theaters and movies playing it safe and is that a blowback of fandom are movies doing all these musical biopics and are theaters and uh, composers doing these music biopics because it's hard for fans to do a blowback on them because it's based on a real person you can't you can't hate on tina turner for doing what she did because it really happened you can't hate on ray charles it's like well yeah no he's actually blind he actually did this you know what i mean it's you can't and it stops fanboys from doing that you know what i mean but and so that way it's a safe play too yeah i just you know one of the earliest lessons i learned as a child was you can't please everybody like anything you do no not every single person is going to like you and you know with our with onstage blog when the content that we put out there you know, early on when we started, you know, getting big, 
I, I listened to the readers a lot. Like I, I would read the comments, which is something you never do on <laughs> social media. Just don't read the comments. Um, but I would read them and I would, and I would sometimes let the negative feedback impact what type of stuff we would write. And I just had to get to that point where I'm like, no, I, you know, I got to stop doing that. And, um, you know, we just have to be true to ourselves and, and just continue on this path of just writing about certain things the way that we do it. And, and thankfully it's worked out you know, positively, but there was, I would say two years ago, there was a, a good period where I was like, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. Cause you know, I can't, like I'm getting all this hatred or uh, every time I talk about whitewashing or, you know, unfair casting practices, I'm getting this wave of like, you know, stop bitching about it and stuff like that. So like, yeah, it, it gets, it, I definitely felt that, but um, yeah, at some point you just got to say, screw it. Like, you know, whatever readers we lose, we're gaining more because of the content that we're putting out there. And the same thing goes with these movies. So, you know, if Marvel wants to continue down this pathway of doing, you know, Captain Marvel, female centric, you know, you know, uh, inclusionary storylines with their characters, go for it because whatever fan fanboys you lose, you're, you're probably going to gain more tenfold. So do it. Yeah. Right. I mean, my problems with Captain Marvel wasn't that she was a female at all. I mean, that was, that was, I that didn't even enter into my thoughts. Right. Was, you know, right. the dark <laughs> fighting scenes, I couldn't tell who, what the hell was going on. And, <laughs> you know, what I mean, there was certain things I was like, all right, I, I just didn't know what the hell was going on. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it depends on what you listen to. And when I, whenever I teach a class on creativity, like whether it be creative writing or theater, um, I know that there are certain people and it's not their fault. It's not my fault. There's just certain people I can write songs with. You know what I mean? There's yeah. certain people I've found and it's taken me a long time where I've been in bands. I've been on shows. I've written creatively with people and I just, we don't gel, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And usually it comes from that kind of same place where it's like, if someone's going to hate on you the whole time while you're trying to write, you, you won't write. It'll cripple your creativity. You know what I mean? Right. If I'm sitting here with mm-hmm. a guitar, I have a couple chords and words and someone comes over and is like, that's dumb. I'm going to go, yeah, you're right. It is dumb. Why are we doing? All right, let's stop. <laughs> like there's only a certain, I'll talk myself out of writing a song or a poem in a second. Just if someone says it's dumb. Yeah. But you know, it's taken me this long to go, you know what? I need to tr- trust whose voice is in there. There's certain people that are creative people and I trust their opinion and there's certain people that I don't trust their opinion. And it's so tough to see who you're talking to. And especially if you're, you're a young writer or a young performer, how many times have you, I mean, Chris, just being in our limited range of acting and being creative when you're younger, how many of your friends were like, why are you doing that? That's dumb. You know what I mean? And these are friends Mm -hmm. that you love still to this day, probably. And they're just not creative people. And it's kind of taken you a long time to, probably just like me to say, Oh, you know, they're just not a creative person like me. So, you know, they'll live their life and I'll live my life in that, in that spectrum of my life. It's so tough. Mm -hmm. And so when on a global scale, when you're making a movie that makes a billion dollars, you know, there's going to be 10% of the world's population that doesn't like what you're doing. So tough. Yep. Good stuff, man. Well, it's again, you and I are like on, like wavelengths, like brain wavelengths this week. Cause my, did you ever think five, that, did you ever think that this is all a dream, Chris? <laughs> man, I mean, if I, if I wake up in about five minutes and this podcast was a dream, I'm going to be so pissed. I'm going to be so pissed. We have to re-record this. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, but no, real quick. I mean, 
I listened to this podcast of you because a friend of mine recommended it. Um, it's, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, this guy named, his name is John Ronson. And he's kind of like an investigative reporter. He's British. He's done a couple of podcasts that are kind of like that investigative serial type of podcast. But he did one called The Last Days of August, which is all about, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this news story. It was actually happened last year, but uh, an adult uh, film star uh, by the name of August Ames, is, that's her performance name. Uh, sadly killed herself last December, so December of 2018. Okay. And um, the the reason, you know, a lot of people are, are speculating, but what they found was that days before her suicide, um, she had gotten like a ton of, of Twitter backlash for tweets that she had put out there. And apparently she tweeted out that uh, a performer that she, a male performer that she was set to work with had done both um, straight and, and gay porn. Um, and she would, she didn't want to work with him because she, you know, didn't feel that it was safe and it was her body, her choice. And she had a choice of who she could work with. So she put that out there saying that like women, you have to, you have the ability to choose who you can work with. And a lot of people took that as homophobic and just railed on her and just said like, you're a homophobe, you're terrible. Um, one, another, um, adult film star said like, you should go kill yourself. Like it was awful. And wow. three days later she did. And this podcast is really interesting because it, it goes into the incident of what happened. It explores, just like we've been talking about, that toxic, you know, that toxicity that exists on Twitter and online and social media and, the, and what they call internet pylons, which I think is a really good um, term for it. You know, when you're just getting piled on of backlash and hatred and things like that um, and, and the dangerous effects that it can have. And it led to this young woman killing herself. And it really breaks down the timeline of like, here's, you know, she, she sent this text out at this time, you know, and three hours later, she you know hung herself you know, on a tree and things like that. It's a really, really well-made podcast. And, um, you know, as much as, you know, the public Chris Peterson would say, I have no idea who August Ames is. I knew who August Ames was. Like, I'm a man. I know who he is. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Um, and when I, when I heard that she killed herself, I, w- I was definitely taken aback because, you know, she was, a well-known adult film star. That's no, there's no doubt about it. So it, but it really does kind of peek behind the curtain of the, just how, um, you know, if you're someone who does suffer from bipolar or depression and things like that, being in the adult film business is the absolute wrong industry to be in. Uh, But yet it is so, they talk about how it is so, um, I don't want to use the word attractive, but, like it is such is a common, common for, common. yeah. The women who go into yeah. that, it's so common that they, they come from sexual abused past. They come from damaged mental illness and things like that. So it's susceptible to that, to that industry. So it's a really good podcast on that. But yeah, to your point earlier about toxic fandoms and toxicity online and, and the dangerous effects that it can have, you know, when, when people send out these tweets to celebrities that think that, you know, they're, it, that they have skin like Teflon, oftentimes they don't. And um, they do this great interview on this podcast with this another actress by the name of Jessica Drake, who you can hear her voice shaking, talking about this. And it's just like, holy crap. Like, it, it just, it's eye-opening. It definitely, it's it's one of those podcasts that made me think about how do I interact on Twitter when I, when I talk to people. It made me think about how I write write certain blog posts, especially the ones where I'm going after certain people and, and uh, whatnot. So yeah, if, if you get a chance, 
uh, definitely check it out. It, it's on a couple different platforms. If you have things like Audible or a couple other things, but I, I went to a website called Player FM where you can listen to it uh, for free because they paid for it and then they stream it out. So um, it's a it's a really good podcast. But yeah, I just wanted again, I I wanted to bring up to you your thoughts on toxic fandom and toxicity and internet pylons, but we've been talking about it. But this is a great yeah. this is a great thing to just kind of continue that conversation. Well, Chris, I mean, when I when I you know speaking of creativity, you know being um, you know, whether you're in the creative field or you just, you need to write or you need to act or you need to sing, whatever it is. Um, nine times out of 10, people that do that are sensitive people. They're right. sensitive emotionally and stuff. I mean, I just talked about almost <laughs> falling out at Toy Story 4. Um, <laughs> I wasn't even in the movie and I'm crying right there. Um, but that kind of that personality trait that I have makes me a great performer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And when I talk to any class or um, client about the bipolar disorder or, you know, uh, mania and stuff, I mean, I point to Jackson Pollock. I mean, the guy would stay up for three days straight, usually binge drinking or something like that, but uh, not eating and creating masterworks on a canvas. Um, and, you know, I point to the movie with Ed Harris, you know, just, outlining what kind of personality he was he went would go into rages and he would have these manic highs and not sleep and stuff but this amazing art came out of it um and i talk about how if you can cr control that energy you can channel it into art you know what i mean um there's right. no doubt in my mind that lynn Manuel, uh when he did uh hamilton you know what i mean um who can speak a million speed rap a million miles a second and do it on command. <laughs> like if he's on Jimmy Fallon or something like that, there is something going on in his brain that is firing way higher than a lot of people. You know what I mean? And he uses that to channel that energy creatively. Now that same channel will make you susceptible to negativity because you are sensitive emotionally all the time. Um, so it, it is a blessing and a curse at the same time. Totally. Well, good stuff this week. Honestly, yeah, man. we broached some really good topics, but um, maybe it's the porch. Then, maybe it's the back, the back, uh, yeah, the backyard but, out here. Have you heard the bug zapper, everyone? I hope that. <laughs> I hope yeah, I it's have. doing work. Good, good Lord, let's hold, let's hold a moment of silence for those bugs, man. Yeah. Um, there might be some. You know, I'm watching. I don't know. There might be a couple hummingbirds in that thing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh man. We're gonna get some activists out here. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's end on a high note. So let's go YouTube in my friend. YouTube baby. Let's do it. Um, this week, honestly, like again, kind of following the same trend that we always do. I, I usually have just one big thing that I've been watching. Uh, so I'll just do it real quick. Um, I, I don't know what it is. I'm really into magic on YouTube this week. Um, last week on America's Got Talent, there was this amazing card magician named Eric Chin who did some just unbelievable, unreal card tricks. And, um and magicians from all over the world are saying like this dude might be the greatest card magician in the world right now based mm -hmm. on that act and so I, and then of course that took me down a wormhole of just watching magic left and right but i don't know i love watching magic shows um i love being amazed i love trying to figure out like how in the world do they do that and i think in this day and age when we're all like you know tech savvy and you know, trying to figure out stuff and, you know, things like that. Just being able to sit back and being amazed by something is awesome. So folks, I'm just going to encourage you to just go on YouTube 
and just look up like magic tricks, magic shows, like, uh, because you will be amazed. So there you yeah, go. Yeah. Chris, I did that maybe like last year on YouTube where I just went down. What's the, um, is it fool us? The Penn and Teller? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Great show. Mm-hmm. Great show. And there's great clips on YouTube of like, you know, acts that didn't fool them, but still you, it's the way that their brains work and, you know, um, analyzing and stuff. It's great when they find out when they know the sleight of hand that they're watching. And then I love watching, um, David Blaine. There's full episodes or Mm -hmm. full, um, specials on YouTube too. Some of the, his tricks still, I, I still don't know. Just call me gullible, but, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the one where he swallows someone's ring and then pulls it out with a coat hanger out his throat. Yeah. I, I don't know. And then it's around the part of the coat hanger that's already tied. Like he does it. I think he does it in John Travolta's house and he does it in mm-hmm. um, David Beckham's house or something <laughs> like it's and they're sitting there and they're screaming like people are running like their friends are running out of the room because <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I've watched it so many times and, I you know, it. being a performer and being a nerd about you know, uh, CGI and effects and how we can be hypercritical in this day and age. There's, I love how, like you said, there's still some things that have a mystique about them. Yeah. And nothing wrong with believing in magic. Come yeah, on dude, now. I totally believe. There you go. <laughs> what else you got? What do you got for this week? All right. YouTube. And, uh, I went, I went a little crazy. Um, uh, let me hit a couple that are totally unrelated. I just kind of went all over the place. Um, like I said, the broken formula formula of music biopics by Pat- Patrick A. Willems. I've talked about him a million times on the show. He's a great YouTube channel. Check it out. That's 34 minutes. Um, I And then down that, I went down a music kind of thing, and I watched the Ramones live at the Rainbow, December 31, Ooh. 1977. If you don't have enough coffee in you and you're got, getting ready for work, just put that on. It's a great live performance. It's awesome. Full video. Um, but then uh, went down the rabbit hole of... Uh, on YouTube, it would probably be taken down after I mention it. It's the SNL Best of World Will Ferrell. <laughs> I was watching the cowbell. That's why I quoted it earlier. Oh, um, nice. There's so many great sketches uh, on there that are awesome. And I showed, actually, I showed the kiddo the cowbell sketch. Yes. And he's sitting there and I go, he's like sitting there for a little bit. I go, all right, just watch this guy's belly. <laughs> and <then> just Will <laughs> Ferrell's belly coming out of that shirt is so funny. And he's sitting there laughing. So that's sh- that's just funny in general that's just funny haha um let me ask you this ben yeah <laughs> mount rushmore mount rushmore of snl oh is will ferrell on the mount rushmore oh my god i thought we were wrapping up the podcast all right here we go <laughs> here we go <laughs> okay all right you ask all right so you know there's a really interesting interview with um i think i talked about it with uh oh my god i'm drawing a blank who's the head of um SNL who's who Oh, Lauren Michaels, Lauren Michaels yep. on the Norm Macdonald mm-hmm. show on, on Netflix. And he had this great point. Your favorite cast is when you were 12, 13 years old. Um, so for me, it's really hard not to put someone up there from the nineties, you know, whether it be mm-hmm. Carvey, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, David Spade, Adam Sandler, it's, it, you got to pick one of those guys for me. I think I would, I think I would go Dana Carvey. Because mm-hmm. he was huge in the early 90s. Then you have to pick someone from the 70s. And for me, the guy that wrote the most and performed the most and did impressions and did it all would be Ackroyd. And that is a hot yeah. take from me, I think. I think a lot of people would fight me on that. I would go, like, I'm thinking about people that carried the show. So I'd go Ackroyd. Mm-hmm. Then if you talk about the late 80s, early 90s, I would go Phil Hartman. 
I would go Dana yep. Carvey, and then I'd go Will Ferrell. You have to. Have to. I think you have to. I mean, what do you got? I, I what do you got? Put, well, I think a lot of people would put Belushi up there. I'd be like, yeah, but like Belushi only did like he kind of did the same thing. Like if you watch, if you really truly watch those episodes, those early episodes, yeah, you have like the samurai thing. Yeah, you have uh, the Blues Brothers and stuff like that. But like he really was kind of that. He always kind of hit the same type of beats. You didn't get a lot of variation from him. So yeah, with Ackroyd, who really did carry that show. I mean, my God. Um, it, it probably would have been canceled if had it not for him been, you know, been, yeah, he's him. doing, I mean, he's, he's doing a, Nixon, but then he's also doing the blues brothers. He's doing yeah. uh, the Bassomatic and crazy sketches like that. Um, he's doing just great work. And, you know, when we talk about supporting, you know, that's something that we is lost in today's SNL is the cast would support your host. You know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. that was all you needed and they would be there and they would sometimes, they, they were the main show. You're, you know, mm-hmm. it'd be great mm-hmm. if Elliot Gould's on, but you know, you're, we're really there for Belushi, Aykroyd and, you know, <laughs> freaking Bill Murray. Definitely. You know what I mean? But it's hard for me to uh, ignore Bill Murray too. Yeah. It's uh, it's tough. And so this is, so I'll definitely put Aykroyd there. This is my hot take. What right? you got? Jan Hooks. Ooh, that is so late eighties, like mid eighties. So I think she was like eighty five to like ninety two or something yeah, like that. Ninety two, ninety three. She played Hillary Clinton, so she was on for a while. She's probably on for ten years. Yeah. yeah. Um. Honestly, like you want to talk about versatile actresses, multiple different things. She could do those like really ridiculous, over the top, dramatic things. Like I love. There's one skit that's so stupid but so good it's tom hanks as a shoe shine like a boot shining thing uh it's like the tales of ribadry or something like that that's hosted by john lovitz but like she is giving a freaking performance and it almost like over the top dramatic so that it's funny uh but it's so good and like um i remember when phil hartman had died she did this like she showed this like short film that she had done with him where she plays this old woman who goes to a bank and then she's young again and blah, blah, blah. And she dances with him, but it's a really sweet short film, but it just makes you appreciate her as an actress. And, and sadly she's gone too. But um, so yeah, Jan hooks would definitely be on there for me. Um, I, I would put Hartman up there um, as well. And it's tough because it's, Ooh, who, who's that fourth person? I know. Well, and it's, it's so hard because if you were to go hard. post fame, that list would be crazy. Mm-hmm. It, it would be so different than what I just said. I mean, I'm going with who wrote and who kind of played in the most sketches and was the most versatile. That's my list right there. But if you went most yeah. famous, I mean, Eddie Murphy would be number one. You would probably go sure. uh, Farley. Then you would, I I don't know. You, you'd probably do Farrell again, but then you'd have to do Bill Murray or Belushi. You would have to do something like a mm-hmm. fame list, you know, post-career kind of yeah. SNL. You could go down the list so many times. And then I'd even mention females. I mean, top four females for, oh, oh my God. I mean, you could go I mean, Gilda Hooks, Radner. What about uh, Gilda Radner? Gilda Radner. You do Radner. Okay. Then you could do Tina Fey. Um, Tina Fey, Kirsten Wig. She's up there. I mean, or Kristen Wiig, Kirsten Wiig, Kristen Wiig, Kristen Wiig, yeah, Kirsten Wiig. Uh, I'll tell you, Wait, I Kirsten, Dunst? Kristen Kristen Dunst. Dunst? <laughs> Kirsten Dunst, Kristen Dunst, Kristen Dunst, Kirsten, Kirsten Dunst, <laughs> Kim Basinger, Basinger. I, you know. um, <laughs> I gotta tell you, I ride with Anna Gasteyer. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought she was phenomenal. Molly Shannon, like that whole crew, Sherry O'Terry. Good lord, there've been some good females on that show. Um, yep. 
tough calls all around. But yeah, no, it's just yeah, Will Ferrell. I think he, he for both of us, Mount Rushmore, Hall of Fame. All right, Fame, first all right here we go. Here we go. All right, you ready for this? Who's your um? Who's your? <laughs> you know, all right. So who's your? person that was on the show the most but really never broke out i mean i think for my mount rushmore would be tim meadows tim meadows on that show for like 20 years i think he was on from like 91 i think he's still on the thing i think he just shows up you're like oh tim meadows is still there (laughs) oh gosh he he would definitely be up there um i mean michael mckeon was on the show for this weird season that weird season where it was like chris elliott michael mckeon and uh but see i uh, still know kids in the hall so like when mark mckeon showed up on or Mike McKeon showed up. Oh, my, I'm sorry. Mike McKeon from. Yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah. Mike McKeon from freaking uh, Spinal Tap. Like I got when he was on it. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Weird and then Mark Kinney was on there at season two. Mark like the, one of the funniest sketches of all time was when Chris Farley's dancing on the ice with Janine Garofalo. Another weird take during that th- season. And then uh, Michael McKeon rolls up and he's the devil. And he is two, two minutes in the shed with the devil. That's a funny sketch, but it's like filled with the weirdest kind of side SNL characters of all time. Right. And then I was Mark McKinney who was from kids in the hall. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Mark McKinney. On later on. I mean, honestly, I, I would put David Koechner up there. Oh, like he yeah. was oh. freaking solid on that show and never broke out the way he should have probably. Um, Gosh. And then Colin Quinn. <laughs> Colin Quinn Colin was so Quinn? random. I mean, how about Norm MacDonald? I mean, I mean, was... Dirty Work is one of my favorite freaking comedies of all time. Like that's <laughs> Is that your Happy Gilmore? Is that your is that your guilty yeah, pleasure movie? There. And sadly because she's, you know, um she's gotten kind of crazy. Who was the blonde during the with the high pitched voice? Uh that was um uh Jackson to um something yeah. Stephanie? No, not Stephanie. I was gonna say Tiffany Jackson. Tiffany. Tiffany? I don't know. Her. She's she's sadly become like this alt right, like yeah, crazy person. But um, she was solid too. So they've had some like really. But she's also in the movie. She's also in UHF. (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's a good movie. That is a great movie. So yeah, they've had a bunch of people that have just yeah solid on the show and just never really. You know, broke out the way Victoria that, Jackson, uh, Victoria Jackson, Victoria Jackson. Thing. Right. I mean, you could even make the case for Rob Schneider, like never really broke out the way, you know, he could have. But you yeah. know what? When Rob Schneider was on that, yeah, he was versatile, too. He had a couple ongoing characters, but he had some really funny sketches um, on his own that you could tell that he wrote on his own. Like one of my favorites is he's playing the guitar in the subway. And he's singing mm-hmm. about the guy, <laughs> please don't jump in front of the subway car. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's really funny sketch. I, I don't know. Hartman's hard to beat that, that supporting kind of character that, right. I mean, he was super ultra famous, but my God, the versatility in that guy was just awesome. I don't know. And you know what's interesting? We haven't mentioned a single cast member from the past five years. Or, like or really 10 years. I mean, <laughs> or 10 years. I mean, it's, that's very telling. And, uh, yeah, it's it's this this cast like that you have now. I, there's not a single Hall of Famer on, on it except for Kate McKinnon, I think. And I, um, you know, and Keenan, Keenan is oh Keenan. Yeah, I mean, he's the but, longest tenured member now. Yeah, but he he's funny from sketches that were on ten years ago. You know what I mean? I think of right. you know, um, uh, Jason Sudeikis. You know, doing the <laughs> what's up with that sketch <laughs> like. <laughs> and then and then Bill Hader as Lindsey Buckingham. I mean, that sketch is funny because it's an ensemble piece. You know what I mean? Um, right. And, and not because really they, they don't do, even do that anymore. Like, he, you still got Keenan. Like, why aren't you doing that? Right. That sketch anymore. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't know. 
I don't know. But all right, what else did you want to do on your, your YouTube? And I, I know I cut you off there. Oh no, that was that was great. Yeah, no. So check out, <laughs> and then that you can do a deep dive on SNL on YouTube. Um, my last one was, um, I always are. I'm always interested in uh, speed running. So video game speed running is a new thing where people try to take oh. classic SNES games and they just try to speed run them. I think I've mentioned it a couple times, but this one that I found today was um, world record. Contra low percentage in 10 minutes and 22 seconds co-op. So it was two people that um, did the game Contra for the SNES or for NES and they don't pick up any power-ups on the speed run. So no spread gun, no machine gun. It's pretty impressive in uh, 10 minutes and 22 seconds. Check that out. Wow. Oh my God, dude. I forgot one more thing. I apologize. Yeah. Dude, this is going to be like a two-hour All podcast. Right. I don't know. I'm okay with it. Um, as long as you folks are okay with it. Have you heard about this bottle cap challenge? What's that? So this is the, the summer, you know, hashtag challenge that this seems to happen every single year. Uh, like the ice bucket challenge and the, that stupid Drake dance thing. So this is the thing called the bottle cap challenge where people are putting slow motion videos of them doing roundhouse kicks to a bottle that to spin off the cap without moving the bottle. So imagine me doing a slow motion roundhouse kick and just kicking the top of a, like a soda bottle and just getting the lid. So it spins off clean without kicking the bottle. over. That's pretty impressive. Sounds pretty, pretty impressive. Right. So of course, like the internet is having a field day with this and like, you've got some martial arts stars and MMA people that can legitimately do it. Like Jason Statham did it as well. And like, you know, legitimately right, did it. Watch that. And then you've got people awesome. got to make fun of it. Um, but then you've got people like just making fun of it. So like, you know, they just use their hands or like they, you know, they're just doing amazing things, amazing response to the bottle cap challenge. Um, and also people that are trying it and failing miserably and just falling on their asses and things like that. So yeah, if you want a good laugh and just, you know, marvel at some, just some really gold, some, some social media gold on YouTube and things like that, just look up the bottle cap challenge. Cause it's, uh, it's pretty spectacular. Awesome. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm going to check that out. There you go. Ben, this was a good week, my man. Real quick before we sign off, anything you want to plug? Anything coming up soon that we should know no, about? No, we're going to keep rock and rolling for the summer. This week, I'm uh, going away, so I'm going to watch some Spider-Man. I'm, I kind of want to see that new Annabelle. It's supposed to be great uh, in the Insidious nice. universe, so I'm going to check that out. But uh, that or Wait, Insidious? No, the Conjuring universe. So I'm going to – Oh, Conjuring. Yeah, um, tomato, tomato. Conjuring saga, yeah. they call um, it. So yeah. uh, I'm going to check that one out, so I'll have some full reviews next week. Sweet. Can't wait. Can't wait. And folks, you know that uh, with these, you know, uh, all these podcasts can be heard on the Onstage Blog Network at onstageblog.com, where we have almost a dozen podcasts up there right now. Crazy. Uh, and we're pretty much pumping out new episodes almost every single day on the network. It's it's unbelievable how much content is there. So definitely check that out. We're also on, excuse me, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn for Android users. Now we're going to probably expand even further down the road. So this way, no matter where you go, uh, you will have desperately seeking entertainment, the movie musical shakedown stage directions, just awesome. Name a few. So awesome, dude. we're going to be all over the place. Um, getting a crazy amount of listeners. It's been amazing to see the growth of this network uh, the way it has. So definitely. Well, you know what, Chris, you know, you guys touch upon different subjects, you know, not to boast our own podcast, but we, I, I hope that we touch upon different subjects that other um, podcast networks don't mm -hmm. and so people are getting like a little more in depth and stuff we try to bring some 
something different, especially on our podcast. You definitely. Know? Definitely. And the message you're getting through, getting some really good feedback. So keep that feedback coming. Definitely like us on Facebook. Let's just search for Desperately Seeking Entertainment. It's the first thing that comes up. Um, and yeah, tell us how we're doing because we've always, but don't be toxic about it. Don't be dicks because, you know. <laughs> and if you were, I'm, I'm, I'm loaded with sarcasm all day. I want to, I want to see the internet bring it. I'm, I'm, I'm strong. I can take, <laughs> I can take it. it. <laughs> Excellent. As I'm bawling into <laughs> Toy Story 4. <laughs> I, hey, you brought it up. I was going to say, you know, I was going to say it. Did you hear, did you hear what they said about us, Chris? <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, folks, we'll see you right here next week on Desperately Seeking Entertainment. Thank you.